Hello, welcome to the first interview in the Saint and Miraculous podcast. My guest today is Brooke McNamara. Brooke is a Zen teacher. She's also a poet and has previously been a dancer. I don't know if she would still call herself a dancer. Well, I imagine she still dances. In this conversation, we talk about the Zen tradition, poetry, and the intersection between those two things. And uh, all of those things are very close to my heart. So this was a really fun one. I hope you enjoy. I was thinking about teaching. I also taught, um, I taught a little kind of meditation, spiritual get together a few weeks ago. And I had a very similar experience there of, um, oh, it's really hard. Like I'm used to teaching like circling, right? Or T group or NLP or something where it's like, or integral where it's a map or it's a process. Yeah. And those things, it's, they're very mental, right? But to just hold a space for the kind of the, wi the widest space or the richest space you can imagine, mm -hmm. it's really hard. It's, it's, it's like way harder than just meditating. So maybe that's, yeah, <laughs> because I think you do that really beautifully. I think that that's... That that's something like I noticed. Like I, the reason I taught my little classes, I was inspired coming to your Zen Sunday oh, mornings. Of, I would walk in the room and just be like, "Ah, <sighs> oh, there's room for everything here." Oh, I'm so glad to hear that. Yeah, yeah. You, I, I actually want to start with that prompt of like, um, it's hard mm -hmm. to teach <laughs> yeah. and especially i think to create that space that and yeah i mean i i i've talked a lot already about that so I, i'm gonna stop talking but yeah i just want to i'm curious if that sounds true to you or like how it is for you to be in the front of a room full of people teaching zen mm -hmm. i mean i i when you were, when you were just talking about it, I couldn't help but laugh because I, I totally agree that, and there's a way where I get, um, you know, I get nervous. I get like the butterflies that are, I get all the physical sensations that are telltale signs that I really care. Mm. I've been a, perf well, I don't, identify as a performer anymore but I that was my career in my 20s and what I trained for you know through childhood teens and college years was to be a, a dance theater performer mm -hmm. and I never once didn't get nervous uh -huh. I just learned better and more unique specific to my being tools for working with all those sensations mm. And just to also frame it as like, I feel, I feel these things because I care about the ritual space. Mm. Like, I know I feel that way when I'm entering 
what's potentially a ritual space. I can feel that my ego is squirming and needs to ultimately relax Mm -hmm. and let something bigger take over, Mm -hmm. which (laughs) when that happens, it's really easy. It's the easiest, most pleasurable, most delightful, natural thing there is. But so even when you were just talking about teaching is hard, I could feel myself right away, just cueing myself, just relax. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like I can just feel like such a, such an embedded um, little coach inside myself. Mm-hmm. It's like, Oh yeah, I know what he's talking about. And there's an immediate loving, thank God. I don't know if I trained it to be loving or if it just is, but there's just this loving voice. that's like, yeah, it's really hard relax Uh that's so great i I, do you and you you say you don't do do you remember learning to do that deliberately was that something you kind of or or is that like some grace that's just showing up um probably both i just in december was on a retreat with my teacher and zen community for hot Uh session and my teacher got really sick so a couple of us senior students, she asked us to give the Dharma talks and support the retreat because she was really sick. Mm-hmm. And I chose to give my talk. The title of it was Smile at Fear. Mm. And so I really went into like a, a pretty nuanced sharing about, a, for me, I'm 41, but a lifetime of navigating fear and particularly in terms of preparing to perform or preparing Mm -hmm. to be in front of people, which, you know, I think evolutionarily is just a setup for um, all all the physiology of, of wanting to belong and not be kicked out. Uh You know, um, and, and just, you know, particularly in a female body, I've recently learned that my, the way, female hormones are what puts us more sensitively in touch with the social nervous system Mm -hmm. so in general beings and female bodies are picking up more cues of who's getting along and who's Mm -hmm. threatened and all those things so i and for me it's generally true when i compare notes with my husband and and um friends and male bodies male friends and um so I, and I'm just sensitive in general. So there's a lot, I, I'm wired to pick up a lot. So I think I've trained over time to have a, a whole arsenal of ways to prepare to embrace those sensations and work with them. So mm-hmm. probably somewhere along the line, I taught myself to purposefully relax, mm-hmm. but I don't remember the moment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, it's just like sometimes if sometimes to tell myself to relax has the opposite effect. So it doesn't, yeah, sure. it depends on the tone of voice. Yeah. Like, just relax. Like, <laughs> come on, you're fucking up. <laughs> yeah. I, I, yeah. I mean, there's so much. Uh, I'm wondering about the difference between, because you were a dancer, right? When you say you were a performer, that was primarily dance. Yeah. I mean, eventually it was also like, we called it dance theater because there was a lot of speaking on stage and uh-huh. I was primarily trained as a dancer. Gotcha. 
like I don't know if it's doing a disservice to dancing and performing, but it seems like the role of of teaching spirituality and especially of yeah, I mean, I keep calling it creating a space. Like my experience is as much as like when you when when you think of teaching, you think of like somebody explaining something, somebody kind of like taking their knowledge and putting it in somebody else's head. Right. And that's not especially my experience of what goes on in the the Sunday morning. I what would you call it? Just the the the. Is there a name for those? Like a formal name? Um, the meetings. Practice session. Zen right, practice. Right. <laughs> so for for the listeners, uh, Brooke and Brooke and her um teaching team uh do a monthly Sunday Zen gathering where we meditate and they hold space and um and teach Zen. And, you know, there's some amount of knowledge transfer happening about this is what a koan is. This is how to sit. Like, but it's, it feels to me like that is very secondary mm -hmm. to what's really happening, which is, I mean, you talked about a ritual space here, but, and you know, I, I kind of already said this, but like, to me, what it feels like is happening is I'm walking into a space where my whole being is invited, mm. including especially the the very vast aspects of my being, which are completely maybe it's maybe it feels especially they're invited because there are so few places where those feel invited, and like mm -hmm. most of you day to day interactions, those things are not even on the menu, and then you walk into that space and it's like it literally feels like something that was tightly packed in my chest mm. can suddenly expand out into into the universe. Mm. <laughs> um, and and so, you know, I'm just kind of, this is just me like waxing lyrical and saying thank you, I think. Say thank you for doing that. Like, it's really precious. It's really precious. And that feels like a, a maybe an even harder challenge than to to do with nerves or to do with discomfort than to be uncomfortable and to dance or to be uncomfortable and to read mm -hmm. even to improv yeah and i don't know if that's true and like i say maybe that's unfair to the dancers and the and the the, the theater performers mm -hmm. but there's something i know which i would find easier even though i I've never danced in front of an audience <laughs> in my life, but I still think like I would find it much more uncomfortable to dance in front of an audience. But I, but I think it seems harder to me to to hold that transmission. Well, first of all, what's really vivid for me is just feeling very touched to hear your feedback about mm -hmm. how how you feel coming into that space because there's a lot of training and a lot of intentionality and a lot of um intention yeah and i just said intentionality that that's what we're hoping for is what you just said so i'm really touched mm. um and yes th there's like <laughs> i have a very paradoxical response to you that yes it's harder than performing artistically and it's so much easier because it's 
all we have to do is be our true nature. And it's so, it's so innate and it's also so recognizable in each other. Like just to sit and look around at everyone's eyes, it's so clear that we're, that we are that vastness. Um, and there's something about the, the role of holding space from that seat that my ordinary self is totally pure and included, but there's also a way that just kind of got to get out of the way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I've watched my teacher do it for 13 years and um, received so much really potent transmission from her, you know, that, like you said, it includes knowledge, but it's really a full body recalibration to being in the presence of and being um, the unfolding of Buddha nature or just, you know, awakeness. And that can feel really intense in some moments and then it can feel like just the most relieving natural thing in the world. Mm-hmm. But with, with dance and with reading poems in front of people, there's a way where like the content there's choreography, or even if, right. if I'm improvising, I'm doing something right, or reading something or talking about something. There's a, an, a performance artist named Marina Abramovich mm-hmm. who does really provocative work and she had a a retrospective piece at the MoMA a few years ago called The Artist is Present and there's a documentary about it where she just sat in a chair all day long and people could just come sit with her Mm. and she has a quote from the documentary about how doing something which is close to nothing is the hardest thing of Mm. all so I think that kind of circles back to your original point that it's difficult to be so naked and it also feels so natural and good mm. that it depends on which part of ourself we're talking about. Like part of myself, it's hard and part of myself, it's easy. That line to, to do something so close to nothing is the hardest thing to do. Yeah. Um, it reminds me of, I was just listening to a podcast, these two guys that, um, one is a Zen guy and one is not. And uh, the Zen guy was quoting, I'm forgetting the name of the, the monk, but he's like a 12th century monk. And he had all these aphorisms. And one of his aphorisms was, um, meditation is good for nothing. Uh-huh. And they were talking about it in a particular light and talking about like, why would he say this? And it's kind of deconstructing, you know, la, la, la. And I was hearing it and I'm like, well, yeah, but also like, like it literally, it's good for nothing. <laughs> Yeah. Like, like not just, it is not good for something, but it's good for nothing. Good for nothing with a capital N. Yeah. Right, 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 right. Like if yeah. that's, yeah. So anyway, this, it's kind of, a, I don't know if that pun works in Japanese, but. <laughs> well, I think it's all over the place in Zen and it's also all over the place in, in creative practice. It's like, um, and I think, I, I think that quote, now you've got my like, Zen historian mind racing. I think that's Uchiyama Roshi. Zen is good for nothing. Um, But there's, you know, if you, 
if you think about or read about creative practice to it, there's, there's always the layer that comes up that's also just true for me in direct experience, um, which is that to, to create or to meditate, <laughs> like we have to enter a sort of concentration or a mind state where from the outside, from our conventional mind and conventional society, there's no value on what we're doing. Yes. We're doing nothing. And there, yeah. but from a positive perspective, I love this word autotelic, which means like auto is like self and telic is purpose. It's like the purpose is inside the doing. Like mm. being creative or meditating are satisfying in and of themselves. So they're good for nothing. They're good for no end point, but they're the most fulfilling thing right now. Right. And then some kind of byproduct might come out of it. Like we might come out with a poem or less stress or something, but also there's a, a Zen term, Jijuyu Zanmai, which means um, self-fulfilling Samadhi, mm. which is like when, you know, I can just see on your face that, you know, when you just take the posture of meditation, you don't have to get anything else. Like suddenly something bubbles up from within and it's satisfying. There's like a, my teacher often says it scratched an itch for her that nothing else could. I, in her 20s when she had studied philosophy and literature and she had lost seven friends in one year to all these different accidents and she was like grappling with how to make sense of that why you know what what is this life and something about just sitting closed the gap and scratched the itch of that fulfilling innately satisfying quality of being mm. just being self mm -hmm. Mm. but but from the outside it's good it's good for nothing right. like right. not going to satisfy that thing in us that's wanting to show some kind of i mean there's ways of measuring if we're getting better but this goes into the the theme of the podcast more broadly but I always feel slightly skeptical about those things. The the kind of oh, meditation is good for the, your brain. Your your you know brainstem gets fatter, or like <laughs> I know you like there's something. Yeah, I, I mean, there's so much I want to respond to in what you just said. It reminds me. I think you. I think I I got this story from you. The Trungpa idea, which is you know, it's complicated by the fact he was an alcoholic. Saying meditation should feel like sitting down and cracking open a beer. But like that idea that like it's not supposed to be a chore. It's not supposed yeah. to be like, okay, I'm sitting down and I'm going to do my discipline and I'm going to, you know, suffer through this discomfort of, of you know, and sometimes it's like that, right? Yeah. But I, I love putting on the map the idea that like there's some uh, experience which is, oh, say, what, what's the translation of that Japanese phrase again? Self-fulfilling samadhi. It's great. It's like that, that there's, yeah, there's something just like innately satisfying that happens there. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't, I don't want to misrepresent the whole thing because it, it can be, it can be very difficult to meditate mm -hmm. and some sits are very painful and it doesn't make them a bad sit yes. at all. Like, and, and sometimes I don't taste the jiju yuzanmai or the autotelic nature, you know, and I wouldn't, 
talk about it that way. I was, you know, there's some, there's some sits where literally the only response and, and I, I have shared this on retreat where, you know, it hurts so badly physically or mentally that the only response is, is like an inward scream. Mm. You know, that's rare and I don't want to be dramatic, but it, <laughs> it is, it is true. At some point we all, whether we're meditating or, or just living, we're all, encountering pain and at some point the only genuine response is just ow you know like it's just um and and that's just true and still there is something that is cultivated in the practice of sitting where we're able to to taste that as samadhi as well Mm. samadhi being um you know a kind of concentration where there's an open presence and interior and exterior are one thing mm-hmm. and, and this is it. And yeah, sometimes it feels satisfying and sometimes it hurts, but the good, the good thing, the thing that gets developed is just the, the more and more direct realization of, of a capacity to be right here with it. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I've I've definitely had the experience, especially if I'm meditating regularly, whether it's in meditation or not, that there can be the the painful moments of life. There's like this sense of just like, it's just like a very subtle softening. and, And it becomes beautiful in its own right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I have this fork path here because um, I want to talk about uh, a little more about Zen tradition and ritual, but then I was also like, oh man, that leads us so nicely into poetry. So <laughs> I'm like, oh man, I kind of want to just go into poetry now, but maybe just a little bit more about just kind of formal Zen, just mm-hmm. to say, you know, talking about that space, one of the things that really struck me, you know, I mean, I, I've been sitting with you for on and off for years and years now actually for like maybe four or five years yeah i think so. a little yoga studio yeah. yeah yeah and the latest incarnation has been you you guys have kind of like it's you've you've increased the 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 energy coming in right mm-hmm. and i think deliberately and there's a you're about to receive dharma transmission this year right mm-hmm. which is kind of which i, I definitely um want to hear more about and what I noticed is when when the the Dragon Lake meeting started, it was still kind of had this slightly more informal mode, and like the the cushions were just kind of laid out in like in like an auditorium style, and it, you know, and we would just kind of walk in and be chatting and and what have you. And then the last couple of meetings, maybe just the last one, the last couple, you all have it feels like have crossed a threshold into like no, this is a zendo. <laughs> the cushions are lined up like a zendo. We're going to teach people how to walk in the zendo. We're going to teach people the rituals. And I was feeling the thing before that, but there is like a, a noticeable deepening of that space when when that extra level of ritual comes in. And I'm delighted by it. And I And I just think it's missing in our daily lives. Like we don't, We've dismantled those rituals that we 
would have natively uh, in our culture and partly for good reason, right? Partly out of kind of a rejection of, you know, whatever, like the, the, the history of, of where, you know, we would get those rituals from the, the Christian church. And there are, there are reasons that, you know, we've, a lot of us got thrown out of that world. So it just feels like, again, like it, like a really, a vital nutrient to add back in. But I, yeah, but I, I want to hear about maybe like your, your relationship with those rituals from the beginning, like how, and, and maybe a, a little into like, what, what was the moment? It's a completely different questions, but maybe they connect somehow. What was the moment that you said, "Oh, I'm I'm not just you know a meditator or a spiritual person, but I'm I'm going to enter into this lineage." Mm-hmm. Well, again, I'm. I just find myself kind of. I feel my heart tender hearing that feedback because it's a it's a lineage. This lineage is uh, over 2,500 years old, and there's so much power and beauty and magic and depth in it. And I, because I value all of that, I've, you know, there's everyone who's part of it has, has, has had, has made sacrifices. It's like a certain we sacrifice not having as much space to explore the spiritual marketplace. Mm-hmm in order to go to retreat with this teacher and this community and this tradition and practice with these forms and learn from these ancient masters. Um, But that cultivates a depth that is so beautiful to me. Mm. And I, I think a lot about how the word sacrifice, like not choosing one thing has the same root as sacred or the thing that you do choose you give up certain things because of the limitations of being in human form, make sacrifices, but then, you know, like a marriage or a long friendship or a commitment to any craft over a long period, the depth that gets cultivated is, um, like you said, very nutritious. Mm. It's scary sometimes because I've given my life to the, to this tradition and it's so such an honor and so beautiful. So it's really wonderful to hear your experience framed so positively of what it feels like to come into that space. Mm. <laughs> in a certain way, I'm still surprised that I'm in this like Japanese medieval, like <laughs> from the outside, like our robes are made for men. They don't fit my body. Um, but when I wear them, I feel so so held i feel the lineage it feels so i feel so at home so there's um there's a part of me that's continuously surprised by this path and then a part of me that's just deeply like this makes more sense than anything else um in my i I always was a kind of mystical creature i guess like probably everyone as a child is is a mystic you know like sensing unseen subtle realm beings and forces and even just in the uh um in the gross realm or in physical form just noticing more detail you know just noticing more subtle beauty um and then i was raised catholic and so i did experience a lot of religiosity and religious ritual 
but I honestly liked it. I didn't have any of the baggage that I know can be so, so heavy and so toxic for some people. But I did kind of let that practice go in my teens and really dove into the arts. I was a dancer and a poet. And um, those were what took me beyond myself and into something vast and exciting and adventurous and also soothing. Um, And then in my 20s, when I was dancing professionally, I found my first teacher, Dorothy Hunt, who's a teacher in the lineage of Adi Ashanti. So it's sort of um, direct awakening teachings that her her background was she worked with Mother Teresa actually, okay. and also had an Indian guru. And then uh, Ramana Maharshi came to her in a dream oh, wow. when after he had died, she had no idea who he was. And then she looked him up the next day on online. And anyway, so she had a student teacher relationship with him in a certain way. And then she found Adya Shanti. And so her teaching was powerful, mm-hmm. really, really, really powerful. And I spent a lot of years one-on-one in her office with her, just feeling like <laughs> just, just her, her, my friend who also was a student of hers called her the grim reaper <laughs> because you go into her office and she was, she was old enough to be my grandmother and she's a therapist. And, but her, so she was very comforting in certain ways, but also her presence would, ju- I just would feel myself be dismantled and melted into this I said to her once, I feel like I'm in an ocean of love Hmm. with you. And she said, that's what you are. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Well, let me pause there because I I, there's something almost paradoxical about what you just said, right? Like the Grim Reaper and you felt dismantled and melted in this way that, you know, you sound kind of apprehensive and like, I don't know if it's uncomfortable at the very least. And then you described the experience as an ocean of love, which, right, your mind goes, well, an ocean of love, who wouldn't yeah. want that? But I, yeah. I, I just think there's something interesting about how do those two ideas coexist? Yeah, well, the, the, the actually really spooky and awesome thing about that is that her dream about Ramana Maharshi, who's a, you know, an in, Indian guru who was really he, he, he didn't speak actually after he had some big awakenings, he was just silent and he would sit on Mount Arunachala in India and people would just flock to him to just sit around him because of his presence. And all you have to do is Google him and look at his eyes. And, and for me, I'm like undone by, he has the most beautiful eyes. She had a dream about him, not knowing anything about him. She had a dream about an, an Indian man saying to her in her dream, Um, And I didn't know this. I did not know this story when I told her I felt like an ocean of love in her office. He came to her dream and said, I'm going to dismember you and drown you in an ocean of love. Hmm. So I did not know that story. And she and I were having a meeting one time and we knew each other pretty well. And we had always spent our meetings talking but we knew each other well enough that we stopped talking and we were just sitting in silence, looking at each other. Hmm. And after a while, she said, if you were going to say something from this experience, from this place, what would you say? And I had no idea what to say. Like my brain was really stopped. 
And I just opened my mouth and I said, I feel like an ocean of love. And she said, that's what you are. And then once we kind of got into more of a talking mode and reflecting on it, then she told me the story about how she had had that dream. So that gave me, you know, there's just a lot of resonance and unexplained connection and all of that. But I, I think what, what you're asking in terms of like, how does like being with the Grim Reaper and then being an ocean of love, how does that fit together? And I think it just goes exactly back to your, how we started this whole conversation about like teaching is hard. And also if I can get, if, if my ego can get out of the way or relax, it's, it's also just utterly natural to just be together. Does, does that connection make sense? Yeah, no, it absolutely. I mean, I, you know, I might be, maybe I'm kind of somewhat leading the witness here because I, I also have a sense of like, I think the sense that I made of it as you were speaking was that the reality of that profound an experience of love is frightening. Yeah, totally. Yes. And your mind can go, a notion of love, that sounds great. And you make a picture of just like, whatever the most comfortable thing you can imagine is. But, but the reality is we, we have all kinds of fortifications and yeah. defenses and what have you against that. And I, in this moment, I'm like, I don't really know why. Like I have like a story about why from, you know, reading a hundred spiritual books and, but I'm <laughs> like, I don't know why. Why couldn't it why couldn't it work that once you recognize the ocean of love you just go oh great and you just dissolve into it and you you're you're never yeah. separate again right like for some reason <laughs> that makes more sense but there's something else going on that yeah I uh, yeah yeah i think for some people it happens more that way and for others mm -hmm. this karmic residue or what what you know whatever we're born with or experience that builds up that like you said is protecting us like it is it's a lot i mean in my experience it's just a lot of sensation it's mm -hmm. a fucking lot of sensation to feel not only loved like that but that i am that love i mean it just yeah it, it dismantles a lot of protective layers and it's been in a different way that's also been my experience of the teacher-student relationship in, in Zen training. That's mm -hmm. one of the core pieces of Zen training. And, and I've formally been a student for 13 years now. And there's a saying, I'm pretty sure it's Bodhidharma, who was the first, first founder who came from India to China, that Zen is a special transmission outside of scriptures. Mm. And I'm not sure if he said this, but it's mind to mind, eyeball to eyeball. Mm. <laughs> so we have like lineage charts that Rob and I have traced behind us that trace 82 generations from the historical Buddha to where we are today. And the thing that's really moving about that is that it's not like you said, there's knowledge transfer. Yes. But it's each one of those ancestors is a, an intimate mind to mind um, transmission mm -hmm. where whatever it is that the the first disciple or the first successor of the Buddha held up a flower. The Buddha was giving a, a Dharma talk and, and he basically said like, what, what is Buddha nature? And 
I think it was Ananda, held up a flower. Or no, it was Maha Kashapa. He just held up a flower. But, you know, you can you could hold up a flower like whatever. But the way he did it, the Buddha recognized that he, that they were not separate in that moment. So he, so Maha Kashapa became the first successor. And so that's what, that really, I think that's so beautiful that it's just mind to mind to mind to mind. You can read about Zen, you can even practice alone, and it's going to probably do something helpful if, if, if it's something that's meant for you, something that resonates for you. But really, for me, it's been the teacher-student relationship and the Sangha, where it's real time. And she, we often say that part of the, part of the structure of the teacher-student relationship, and she takes it very seriously. Like she has lots of students, but then if you're a formal student, there's a ceremony for that. Mm-hmm. And she says that that's the point where we are hiring her, so to speak, giving her permission to cross our ego boundary. Mm-hmm. So. You know, and that could mean like, hey, honey, you know, like in the middle, hey, can I give you feedback real quick uh-huh. on something I just saw happen or on the talk that I, that you gave or a conversation we had or ego crossing the ego boundary is also just like, <laughs> sometimes when I'm sitting in the Zendo, I, I sit, my place is right across from her. And sometimes I will just open my eyes just to wake myself up. And, and I've had it happen where she and I open our eyes at the same time. And all of a sudden we're making contact mm. in the middle of the sit. Oh, wow. And that's an, you know, mm-hmm. there it is. Mm-hmm. And it's just like sitting in Dorothy's office in the ocean of love. It's like moving from being like a, a, a self moving around the world to inseparable from all things is part of being human but it's also a funny challenging thing you know and (laughs) and and so i uh, just to go back to your point like i think for some people oh great the ocean of love like yeah i i recognize it i'll hang out there i'm home but for most people the recognition takes a while and then the taste of it takes a while and then letting go into it and letting go of the protective layers takes a while too. Mm. I just so much I want to respond to. There's no way right, I could. Really long answer. No, it was great. It's great. I'm just like, oh man, there's so many, so many uh, kind of juicy, juicy muscles in that. I mean, I love one thing. Like it's it's striking to me the story um, of the student lifting up the flower. Because it's such a Zen story, right? And it predates yeah. Zen by a thousand years or something. But that's yeah. so Zen to me of like, like the teacher asks a question and then the student does something other than answer the question using, uh, you know, kind of linear logic, right? It's, uh, so I, that, that jumped out to me of like, oh, I didn't quite realize that aspect. I kind of thought of that aspect as being you know, uniquely Chinese or uniquely Japanese, or like coming in later. And then, you know, you, you told me about the, the lineage charts. Oh, I've seen the lineage chart. And there's something about that. It's just so cool. It's just so cool to, to trace like 
it's kind of like the I love the uh, um, Five Degrees of Kevin Bacon game where you've got a link yeah. to actors in a movie by where they've yeah. co-starred, and you know, yeah. not to profane this beautiful lineage with that, but it has there's something really yeah gratifying about like this human being sat with this human being then this one sat with this one and this one sat with this one and you can trace real moments of connection yeah all the way back to the beginning of this this you know this lineage which is spread in a thousand directions and has kind of had as much impact as anything that any human beings have ever done yeah yeah so I, I'm just I, I'm delighted by the by the manuscript. Well, the thing is that the ones that we already have, when the first the first ceremony called receiving jukai, when you jukai is like the law or the precepts. It's when you um, make your first set of Buddhist vows and basically agree to certain ethical um, parameters as a way of life, and um, you receive a dharma name. You make a lineage chart for that. So even even though you're not ordained and you're not a Zen teacher, you write your new Dharma name at the end of this whole intricate. You make the chart and you write your name at the end. And the cool thing is the, the line is in red. It's considered a bloodline. And the title even says the bloodline of blah, blah, blah. And the bloodline goes from Shakyamuni Buddha all the way through all the Indian ancestors, Chinese, Japanese, into the West ending with you. And then there's a line from your name that also continues and goes straight around. It diverts the whole time space story and goes straight back to the Buddha at the top. (laughs) So there's this whole, like, here's the story. Uh Uh And then that other line is like, yeah. And the point of the story always is we are the Buddha already. Mm-hmm. Everyone without question. And we might not realize it. So we might want to sit. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and you know, just to not be too religious, I would just say that as like we we're all already free. We're all already widely awake right here, expressing as all these various qualities and we overlay them with lots of preferences and stories and categories and it's all just fine and we cause a lot of suffering doing that too Mm -hmm. so we had a beautiful transition a while ago. I don't, uh, it's, it's gone. There is, now is no transition, but we're going to transition anyway, slightly just to bring in poetry. Mm-hmm. And maybe I'm, I'm deciding how self-indulgent to me. I'm going to be somewhat self-indulgent. That's okay. <laughs> um, so I, one thing I've been noticing or paying attention to with Zen and I think one of the things I really appreciate about it is like, it's so reductive to say what I'm going to say now, but I'm going to say it, but like, it's, it's just very reductive. So I want to say it's not really the whole picture, but it's something like you can kind of think about like a, there is a soul, a path of the soul and a path of the spirit. Right? Mm-hmm. Like, like Ken would talk about like the transcendent and the imminent, right? Yeah. And so, you know, the path of the spirit is kind of 
disassociating from any worldly thing or disidentifying is a better word from any worldly thing and and recognizing the kind of the the kind of the ultimate generality of being like that everything is one right or that we're all you know then there's this and it's and it, it kind of has this ascendant like upward motion right and this and and a moving away from from the particulars and it's the it's the it's the in the intellectual instinct it's the thing that says all of these traditions are really saying the same thing i mean you had a version of it where you're saying you were talking about the buddha and then you're like but really what i mean is awake and free and like you know the yeah. ramana mahashi is pointing to the same thing and you know and it which there's total validity in that and all of that i would think of as like the movement of the spirit or the path of the spirit Mm-hmm. And then there's the path of the soul, which is about the particular specific yeah. things. Like, and it matters that when you go sit in the zendo, every you know everybody's wearing these black robes, and that the the stick hits like tuck 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 yeah. tuck, right? And like these, like the cultural details and yeah, the yeah. personality, right? And the Buddha is different from Ramana Maharshi. The yes. transmission is different, and the face yeah. is different, and it and the unique right and this is the realm of art right like art yeah. is about that being in love with the particularities of life yeah. not only the the transcendence and i think you know i'm saying all this because what i love about zen i think zen is the tradition that i've encountered which most embraces both of those mm. that doesn't prioritize one over the other and actually holds both and mm-hmm. and then there's this other layer that I want to bring in, which I think is more on the soul side. Mm-hmm. Like the spirit is totally happy with explanations, actually. Mm-hmm. Like, and I, I'm making this up. I, who knows if this is true? But like, this is my, my sense. It's like the spirit, like you can have, like, you know, Ken Wilbur is, you know, I think is an influence for you. It's a big influence for me. And Ken is like, he, he explains the crap out of everything. It's like, well, this goes to this and like, you know, and sometimes it's a little constrictive, but it's also, you know, beautiful and helpful. And mm-hmm. the soul doesn't want anything to be explained. Like the soul is like, don't fucking spoil the joke. Like don't, mm-hmm. like if you try and explain the magic, it, it destroys the magic. Uh-huh. And, and I feel that in Zen where they're kind of like, we're not, we're not going to tell you exactly <laughs> what we're doing here. Because that would spoil it. Like, and not as, like, there's something, right? And so when you say there's magic in this lineage, like, I feel that, like, literally in a way, that's a way that I feel specifically the magic of the lineage, not the spirit, not the heart, but the magic is in part in the, like, in the love of the particulars and in the, the unwillingness to, like, give you, like, a, your mind some framework to explain things and what i'm doing right now i would say is kind of contradictory to that a little bit like like the part of me that loves that wants to be like don't even even (laughs) saying this is saying a little bit too much but but i i say all of that because this is kind of my segue into your poetry because i feel like you know zen has this long tradition of like poetry right there's poetry in zen and and it makes so much sense to me. And, you know, I, I just read your book, Bury the Seed. I didn't finish it, but I, I, I read uh, most of it. And it, it definitely, I can feel the resonances with the, the Zen lineage of poetry, while also it's kind of, you know, modern and, and has, has these other aspects. 
but I, you know, in general, I think there's this resonance between Zen and poetry where poetry also is in love with the particulars. Yes. And poetry yeah. is also doesn't want to explain. Poetry doesn't want to tell you yeah. what it's the joke. It wants you to get yeah. the joke yourself or, yeah. the, you know, the, and, and, and I'll just say one other thing, which is what was struck me about your poems, um, not all of them, but many of them is that they're not only an expression of like, if I read William Carlos Williams, right. It feels so Zen to me. He's talking about the red wheelbarrow and everything yeah. depends on the red wheel. And like, you know, it's, it, he says it more beautifully than that, but like, and he's, he's the one who says no idea, but in things like, yes, he's, He's who I reference when I'm urging myself and poetry students to get more concrete. Mm, yes. You know, it, like as you get concrete, you inherently also get more transcendent. Like they're not two different things. Yes, that's yes. Right. And that's the path, right? That's the imminent path. Right. And, and I even like, this is such a volatile metaphor, but like it, it I, one way I think of that is like the feminine and the masculine, right? But feminine, mm. like, loves the world so much she transcends and then mm -hmm. the masculine transcends the world so fully he can love it right mm. as though that poetry is like this is that loving of the world so fully that if you really love it so fully you transcend although i would argue that sometimes when i'm writing a poem it's like i, I can there's poems i could show you that i i could only write that poem because i'd just been meditating and completely disentangled my attention, well, I can't, I don't know, completely. I was able to unhook and unvelcro my attention from the objects of my ordinary life that I felt free enough to write that poem. Yes. Well, I think it, go, it works both ways. Right. Well, I, you know, in my horribly volatile metaphor, that would be a, a masculine movement, a masculine, right? Yeah, right, yeah. Right. Like, <laughs> no, not the, yeah. But anyway, maybe it's, it's, it's those, those ideas are tricky, but, but it, it, it feels like those are two possibilities. And and I'm a, I'm gonna stop giving you my essay in a minute and, and hear your full response. But listen to oh the 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 last thing I observed specifically from some of your poems is it also feels not just an expression like William Carlos Williams, but also it's a direct teaching, like mm -hmm. the, the poems are also teachings, mm -hmm. and you know and with without being kind of like without being abstract right, but with being these kind of very concrete. Mm -hmm. specific things and and so there's something like it's it's like you're even loving the transcendent particularly or you're including the particularity mm -hmm. of the transcendent or something i don't know this but anyway i so that's me kind of gushing about the poems i love that i absolutely love them um, and, oh, yeah. thank you so much yeah. Robbie. um and yeah i mean we could we could get into specifics of specific poems as well but that was kind of just like a whole smearing yeah. out of a bunch of ideas. And I'll, I'll, yeah. how do you feel about all of that? Yeah, there's so much. It's so, it's so rich. Um, well, one thing that came up when you were talking about, like, don't spoil the magic by explaining. I mean, I'm kind of giggling because yes, that's Zen training. It's like, you don't get the, <laughs> there's orientations, but you don't get like an orienting manual mm -hmm. to how it's going to go. And even if you do read some of the Zen books out there that, that outline the training elements or what have you, it's going to unfold without, you know, it's, it's like, um, you know, take a step and the path appears. Like, you know what the path is, but it's, there's no preparation. And Zen, the instructions for Zazen 
um, this is going to sound like technical language, but zazen or sitting meditation is a form of, of sitting meditation that is objectless and non-dual, meaning like sometimes people call it meditation without hand ra- handrails. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's such a val- valuable, valid place for meditation that has lots of instruction and things to do to um, gather concentration. Sometimes it's essential to just first learn how to concentrate in order to stabilize attention to then go, you know, relax beyond a personal sense of attention. But anyway, in, in Zazen, it's like, just sit, <laughs> just take, take, the, take this posture. And when you do, you are none other than the Buddha himself hmm. itself. You are the mind of one. You are the mind of men. You, you are it. Take this posture. You are it. And there's such a faith that the practice itself will teach you what you need, mm-hmm. that it will unfold in the way that it will. Um, and I love that, but it takes, it takes a bit of an adventurous spirit to dive into that. But that's also my exact experience with writing poems. And as you were kind of talking about all of what you were just talking about, I kind of had this like replay of my life and training as a, as a, as a poet. I don't even like, it's weird. I don't know why I don't like to identify as a poet (laughs) because it doesn't feel like a thing. It is a way of being. And I honestly feel like the most in touch with what that means when I'm not learning about it. So I've had I've had periods of really studying it. Like I got my degree in it and I think it's important to learn the craft. So sometimes I'll take classes with poets. I really love like Ellen Bass, Rosemary Watola Tromer. I like to read a lot of poets, but it's just in the doing of it where I learn like, and right now I'm in a practice of writing a poem a day, which I've never done before. And I'm loving it. It's, it's hard, but I am loving it because there's no, I've never learned so much about writing poetry other than just doing it every day right now. And there's a way where I'm kind of nervous. I'm about to launch a new course about meditation and poetry. And there's a way where I'm a little nervous that I won't be able to write while I'm also teaching. <laughs> like I don't know if I can do both at the same time well. Mm. And so I was kind of making a little parallel about like, um, I mean, I think I can. I just have to not teach in a in a certain way. I have to invite people to discover their own way of of writing poetry rather than tell them what to do. So I was going to connect um, the practice of zazen, where there's not and zen training in general, where there no one's going to tell you how it's going to go. You have to live it out for yourself. And I think what's most, the truest thing I can say about writing poetry is that it's the same way. No one can tell you how to write a poem. The way that I'm writing now, I didn't learn from anyone. I don't know. It just, I sit down and listen and voices tell me what to say. It's like, it it takes so much faith and so much, um, willingness to be present just right now like that and that's the funny thing that I kind of don't know if I ever want to say to poetry students on the first day is that 
there's no methodology that <laughs> I can give you. All I can say is that you have to, do, you have to be willing to sit with yourself. Mm-hmm. There's this beautiful quote. Let me, let me read it to you real quick. This Canadian poet named Don Demansky, who died in 2020, and he has these lectures called Poetry and the Sacred. And just this brief quote from him, he says, it takes a great deal of effort to see what's in front of you, whether that's a stone, a mountain, or another person. After much watching, after much witnessing of the metamorphosis from object to presence, you find that everything is self-luminous. So in a way, that's, that's what it is. It's like, I've never written two poems in the same way. I've never known what I'm doing. And if I have, it's only gotten in the way. And the only way I know how to do it is to just be here and listen really hard mm. <laughs> and, then, and then play and, and revise and play and revise and feel what, make, what, what do I really need to say? What do I really need to hear? I, if I am ever thinking about someone else, unless I'm writing them a gift or an ode, if I'm thinking about how I'm going to come across to someone else, I am fucked. Those are the worst poems I've ever written. But if I, I guess, get a little bit, I don't think it's selfish. I think it's just honest. Like, what do I really need to hear? And those are the poems when I, when I write those, then other people usually respond and, or it's like, Oh my God, I think that is so funny. And then could I possibly capture what was so funny about that and put that in a poem or heartbreak, you know, like it's just tracking aliveness in all of its many forms. Yeah. It's not even putting it into language because you can't do that. But like, what are the, what's the language that when I read that, it like recycles that experience for me. Mm-hmm. And so it's, you know, there, there are things to learn for sure, but the heart of the matter, like someone's actual liberation from their own suffering is their own, it's each of our own discovery to make. And, and so is creating poetry. And it's, I don't mean to sound dramatic or heavy about it because it's, it's the most beautiful, fun and heartbreaking process I know. Those are, it's, it's, I'm making a lot of comparisons between Zen and poetry, and there's obviously a lot of differences too, but for me, they go together so well because Zen is about realization, which is a silent matter, and the other half of it is manifestation, mm-hmm. expressing what you know, can't be said in words, manifesting compassionate actions, skillful means in the world to relieve suffering. But it's both of those together. Like literally the kanji for Zen is like insight manifestation, both. So for me, poetry is, is a piece of the manifestation. You said you're tracking for the aliveness, which I love. And I think that that's, you know, I just like, that's what, deeply one of my values is that which i think is i think i'm just gonna make a claim that that is the autistic value like that's the val 
that's what makes someone an artist in whatever mm-hmm. form is is caring about that right in the yeah. same way that you know somebody caring about like precision and clarity makes them an engineer or like there's all these different kind of things criteria or values and like i feel like that cut to the juice like give me the yeah. give me the 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 aliveness um and then you and then you said you know you can't transmit that in words or you can't write it down i think i just want to kind of push back on that a little bit and say but i think you can and i think that that's you know you've done it in this book that's poetry you've done it in this book you know basho does it right like like you you know william collis williams like you you read these things even that you know the quote you just read wasn't even the poetry but like it yeah illuminated something in my mind that it might not be the exact thing that you were feeling yeah. when i read the poem but it's it's related it's not a completely yeah. unrelated thing it, yeah. it's my it's my version of that the same way if you have two pianos in a room and you hit one key the other piano rings mm-hmm. i just kind of want to delight in the magic of that of like yeah how does yeah. that work how does that work that's I so know. fucking cool you can yeah. read something from a thousand years ago and it yeah. still works Speaking of Basho, and I do agree with you, I've gotten into really nerdy uh, arguments or fun, nerdy discussions about can you um, exactly replicate an experience through a poem or not? (laughs) (laughs) I feel like there's a point where you can dig deeper and deeper into like, yes, no, yes, no. But I think you can get really close. And I think that the that's the art form. Yeah. And then the feedback tells you how close you got. Um, so I have some Basho right here that I'd love to, because I'm a, I love Basho as well. Well, I think I know them by heart, actually. There's one I just love so much. Um, he, so he's pretty much the father of haiku, or the mm. credited with establishing that form. Um, and I think my favorite of his is the temple bell stops, but the sound keeps coming out of flowers that is also my favorite bachelor poem i fucking love it i love it the temple bell stops but the sound keeps coming out of the flowers he has this other one i guess he didn't write much about death but this one points to it nothing in the cry of the cicadas suggests they are about to die. Nothing in the cry of the cicadas suggests they are about to die. There is something that I just was feeling into as you were sharing when you were saying, you know, if I ring this note, the other piano note will go. How does that happen? And the the thing that one of the things that just blows my mind about writing poetry, especially right now when I'm writing one a day, and what that's doing is is forcing me to be really equanimous about the whole thing like oh I think I you know I'm also sharing them every day oh yesterday everybody responded so well to my poem 
how am I ever going to write another one? And then, you know, something completely surprising comes up when I think I, I, I won't, I won't be able to do it again. Or how can I let go of what felt like a totally stupid poem yesterday and just do it again? Cause I said I would. I just got to jump in and say, to me, it seems like a radically different practice to write a poem every day than to publish a poem every day and to yeah. publish a poem every day is like, I've, I've spent like a, a you know, times that I've written a poem every day to publish a poem every day sounds like a really clarifying or really like, just like potent. It's really potent. And I have to give credit to my friend, Rosemary Watola Tromer, who's been doing this every day since I think 2016. Wow. And she, her, her four vows are every day I will write. Number two, it doesn't have to be good. It just has to be honest or true. Number three, I can't know the end when I start. And if I do, I'll write past that. And number four, I will share. So I just, I, I didn't plan to do this. That's the funny thing. I just started to do it right before the new year. And then I thought, God, I'm learning so much. I'm going to do this. And it's really potent and really clarifying. But the thing I was going to say is that Sometimes the thing that, like the two piano keys ringing together, the thing that makes me cry when I'm writing is the same thing that makes, that I hear the most about from other people and is not something I anticipated. So I have a poem that I would love to read if yeah, you're open to that. And I'll just say, this is an example. I just wrote this last week and it was based on a feeling of a particular unique kind of aliveness that I wanted to see if I could write. And then when the end came out, it, I don't know where it came from. Honestly, I did not plan it. I don't know where it came from, but Lately, I've been writing at the end of the day when my son is falling asleep. There's like a nice, like, descending quality as he's falling asleep. And I just write in his room. And I wrote this poem. And then I wrote the end. And I just put my laptop down and just started crying. Mm -hmm. And then I walked into my bedroom and I said to Rob, I don't know. I don't know where the end of this poem just came from, but it's so tender. Mm -hmm. And, and I kind of just kept crying. Like, I don't, it just kept working me. And then, of course, I was a bit, felt a bit vulnerable sharing it. But then that's the thing that seemed to ring the most for people who read it. So that's enough. That's enough prep for it. It's called Mine. Mine. When Orion is waiting outside his kindergarten classroom after school next to his teacher and friends, and he doesn't see me as I approach, but instead stares into the field where the big kids play soccer in the wind, and his snow boots come almost up to his knees, and Pokemon backpacks stuffed with so much stuff sags behind him, hanging from his elbows. And he just stands there, being so perfectly himself, not seeing that he's being seen. I know I certainly don't own him at all, but feel such a sudden 
crushing rush of visceral recognition that he somehow emerged from my millions of choices and utter choicelessness. My heart tips over and spills its honey all through every bit of me. I sense the necessity of his being claimed now after an ordinary Thursday school day and for countless moments to come. And that this is mine to do, this specific claiming. Of all the actions anywhere I could perform, I am needed just right here by just this boy, just like we are. And as I scoop him up and carry him away, nuzzling my nose into his sweet, chilly cheek, I think of all the ways I'm grateful to be claimed by parents, husband, lineage, and friends, and how powerfully I long for the great earth herself one day at just the right moment when I'm still and struck by something and looking the other way to gaze on me and cherish me and then claim me for her own. I've never read it out loud before. (laughs) Thank you. We have a world exclusive. (laughs) Should I read it twice? I know sometimes twice is helpful. Yeah, please. Yeah. Mine. When Orion is waiting outside his kindergarten classroom after school, next to his teacher and friends, and he doesn't see me as I approach, but instead stares into the field where the big kids play soccer in the wind, and his snow boots come almost up to his knees, and Pokemon backpacks stuffed with so much stuff sags behind him, hanging from his elbows, and he just stands there, being so perfectly himself, not seeing that he's being seen. I know I certainly don't own him at all, but feel such a sudden, crushing rush of visceral recognition that he somehow emerged from my millions of choices and utter choicelessness. My heart tips over and spills its honey all over every bit of me. I sense the necessity of his being claimed now after an ordinary Thursday school day, and for countless moments to come. And that this is mine to do, this specific claiming. Of all the actions anywhere I could perform, I am needed just right here, by just this boy, just like we are. And as I scoop him up and carry him away, nuzzling my nose into his sweet, chilly cheek. I think of all the ways I'm grateful to be claimed by parents, husband, lineage, and friends, and how powerfully I long for the great earth herself one day at just the right moment when I'm still and struck by something and looking the other way to gaze on me and cherish me 
and then claim me for her own. It's hard to know what to say. It's this explaining the joke thing, right? Like, like I, you know, but maybe I'll say just this, this image of like the necessity of him being claimed and this moment where you're, it's kind of that particularity, right? Mm -hmm. Of like, you know, just this boy. And like in the poem, like as I'm listening, I feel, I, I feel like him. I feel like the boy. And how, like the necessity is right. Like how absolutely important it is that you're there in that moment. And that if you weren't there, that it would break his heart. Like it would be absolutely crushing. And I think like, you know, I, I think back to being that age and, you know, I, I, how old is he? Five? Five. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I remember being five and waiting at school. And if my mom was late or yeah. somebody else came, you know, like she'd send a friend or whoever to come pick me up, just being devastated. Yeah. Like, of yeah. So that anyway, that's, yeah, I think that's kind of, that's where it, where it grabbed me. And then I, with the, with the end, like I have my own sense of what you're talking about, but I, there's also a sense of like, I don't like, then I don't, I don't want to necessarily go, well, are you talking about, is this what you mean? Right? Like, and, and like that kind of like, can we turn the lights on and, and take away the, the last veils and look at the, you know, the naked body with full, like, mm -hmm. you know, LED lights or whatever. And it's like, there's some, there's that instinct is, is there about the end. But yeah, I don't know if there's anything else to be said, except uh, thank you. I think the reason that I wanted to share that one is because there's this um, surprise element that, again, like I said, I didn't know yeah, I was writing about my own death and I didn't know I would be. And I, it felt like an ontological other voice coming through. Mm. And the feeling of that was humbling and tenderizing and, yeah, and also inspiring. And so there's a way where that's the... It's difficult, like Don Demansky says. It's 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 hard to see anything clearly. It's it can be difficult to meditate. It can be difficult to write poetry. It can be difficult to teach. But when we're willing to sit with the discomfort, there are surprises like that, and there are, in my experience, there's there's embedded in our true nature our um, is wisdom and compassion that it just simply arises and gifts itself. It's like reality is embedded with wisdom and compassion. Mm. And if I can sit through the discomfort of whatever I feel confronted by, those surprises emerge that are, I don't want to make it seem like a, a goal oriented thing, but it's just, it's, it is self luminous as Don Demansky says, I didn't, create that ending it happened hmm. and one other thing i was going to say is there's this great book called um the dharma of poetry by john brem and one of the things he says about certain poetry is that certain poems can be spiritual friends and certain poems can be spiritual teachers because they embody and model 
a way of being like I can't remember which haiku poet he starts with talking about I can't remember but it's a it's a Japanese haiku poet and he basically says move out of the way cricket I'm about to roll over is the whole haiku (laughs) and it's super simple but it's like a childlike and very compassionate yeah being living in an animate world and so he's he's talking about how poems can be friends and teachers and i sort of heard you saying that before that i really experience them as living entities that i'm midwifing or something and it's deeply satisfying to be there for that it totally makes sense to me that the living entities it, it makes me i had not thought of it like that and it makes me think of in the Hindu tantric tradition, and maybe I don't know as much about uh, the Tibetan tradition, but in the the Hindu tradition, they talk about the mantras as being consciousnesses, like that the Mm. mantras are living Mm -hmm. beings, like non-physical things. And and it's just like a, oh, and the mantras are these kind of very concentrated things Mm -hmm. distilled, but then these, the poems of the world are also these living things yeah well in the the traditional four vows in zen that we chant at the end of the evening when we're on retreat one of them is um sentient beings are numberless i vow to save them sometimes people now translate it to, I, I vow to serve them and yeah we could t- we could go into that and unpack the meaning in there forever but that's not what i want to do what, what i what i want to say is i had a a meditation period a, a long time ago where it, it suddenly real it, it suddenly dawned on me that the po- I was working on my first book feed your vow and I was like oh these poems are sentient beings I am fulfilling my buddhist vows by serving them to come into form and then I remember kind of digging around in some of Ken's work and and either I heard him say in some interview or I read I can't remember if I read it or heard it but he said ideas are sentient beings. <laughs> it's so good. It's so good. <laughs> I think that's a good spot. Now we have a little bit of business to do at the end. Okay, cool. Recommendations. Oh, yeah. yeah. I have two. I have two for you. <laughs> okay. All right, go ahead. Okay. Maybe so we'll swap. All... Maybe we'll uh, alternate. Okay. This is one of my very favorite Zen books. Cultivating the Empty Field, the Silent Illumination of Zen Master Hongzhi. He's a Chinese Zen master, Chan master, and his writing is so poetic. Mm-hmm. It's incredibly, um, yeah, I can, I, you just have to read it to see what the flavor is. And this is a relatively new, I, I, it's translated by Taigen Dan Layton, who's a Zen teacher and scholar. And it just came out not too long ago, 2000. But it's like, I don't think Hangzhou has been translated before this. And it's so beautiful. Thank you. So I will tell you, you have previously mentioned this book to me and I own it. Oh. <laughs> no, 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 it's, it's good. This is, <laughs> this is part of what will happen. It's fine. Um, and, but I'll say that I read the whole introduction, which was really interesting and scholarly. But, it, but then I, I haven't got passed it to the to the the actual, uh, the actual the work. Yeah. yeah so th- that re-inspires me to so i'm I'll, i'm gonna finish that thank you yeah yeah, yeah. You're welcome
Um, I love the title. I mean, I think you told me the title and I was like, okay, yeah, cultivating the empty field. Um, so it's kind of good because the first one I'm going to recommend to you is, is also something I've recommended to you before. Uh-huh. Um, and, uh, and it's just, this is, I'm just gonna, this is just me indulgently getting on my soapbox for a second to tell the world, including you to watch mother by Darren Aronofsky. Oh yeah. It's appropriate to be scared to watch it. It is it is a very challenging film. It's a man, essentially, you know, it's Aronofsky screaming in rage on behalf of the abuses of the masculine toward the feminine at Uh, at every level of uh, of subtlety from and and it's and um and it's interesting and and what I notice is it it enrages women. Not all women, but it, the, there's a common response that women will watch it and be enraged. That was Lindsay's yeah. response was to just be enraged. Yeah. And anyway, I don't want to say more about it than that, but I I I think it's an absolute masterpiece. It was tr- it was transformative for me, and yeah. uh, it was completely ignored at the Oscars, which was a crime. And and tuned me out of the Oscars for the rest of my life. I will never pay. <laughs> so anyway, that's so I and I know you know I we've talked about this before, and it, it's hard. Yeah, I want to pick a good day, but it is it's it's marketed like a horror movie. It's not a horror movie. It's a very horrifying, horrifying. Yeah, um, mm-hmm. but but I think it's somehow ultimately. Why well, I, I don't even want to say anything else. I just think it's definitely yeah. worth watching. So, I remember you told me you and Lindsay told me a few years ago to watch it, and you said give myself a day to recover. <laughs> yeah, two days maybe. And I was like, I don't have a day. I've got kids. <laughs> That's right. Um, and then I read an, I read an article about Jennifer Lawrence, who was married to him at the time and starred in it, and that she had some like mental and emotional challenges after starring in it so I, i've gotten a little spooked but you keep recommending it so i i will watch it at some point great yeah and yeah when, and i love some of the other films the fountain and black swan i thought were genius yeah 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 so yeah i mean so you 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 can do it if you can do if you can do black swan good good one day when when the stars align but um yeah okay so give me your second okay. I think I told you about the second one and I caveat, I haven't finished it, mm-hmm. but so far, um, this is called, it's new. It came out like two weeks ago, the creative act, a way of being mm. by Rick Rubin, who oh. is the guy behind Def Jam records. Yeah, sure, sure, sure. And he, yeah, the producer, he did, uh, he produced the Johnny Cash, the late Johnny Cash albums and. A bunch and of them, yeah. boys and, yeah. and uh, a bunch of hip hop. I, I can't remember exactly who, but he's, yeah, he's big name. And I think he also was really into integral for a while and Ken's work. And um, I know Rob briefly crossed paths and worked with him, but this is his new book. It looks like a Zen text, you know, the way that it's designed and it's really distilled um, kind of almost like aphorisms of like creative practice. And I was telling my teacher, Diane, um, recently that I have this weird experience when I'm reading. I'm not trying to, (laughs) 
to um, like put myself, elevate myself. I, I'm just, when I read it, I feel like I've said that. <laughs> I, I, I thought I invented that based on my own direct experience of writing and creating. Mm. I realized that thing. I thought that I realized that or realized it with creative collaborators like my friend Lauren Beale. I thought, I thought we discovered that and taught our students, but it, it's almost like, like I used to teach a class called Summoning the Unseen, and there's a whole chapter in here called The Unseen. Mm-hmm. And what he says about creativity in the unseen world is like exactly what I used to say in that class. And, um, so anyway, there's a there's like a something um, universal, but he's he's writing in his own voice, and it's really kind of distilled and beautiful. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. I, that's a very exciting recommendation. I'm definitely going to check that out. Thank you. Yeah. Um, all right. My second recommendation, different. Uh, and it was fun because you, um, where do you quote? I think you quote Ursula Le Guin in a poem in the, yeah, yeah. or somewhere in the book, you quote Ursula uh-huh. Le Guin. Um, uh-huh. So this recommendation is, it's kind of for your kids. Okay. Which is, uh, I don't yeah. know if you if you know it, but Ursula Le Guin uh, wrote a series of books uh, called the, the Earth Sea Trilogy, but she wrote yes. one for you know about the yeah okay. Yes, I read those in middle school, and they blew my mind. Great. So I I have a chip on my sh- again. This, these are my chip on shoulder recommendations to that extent. I find the Harry Potter stuff to be pretty kind of obnoxious i mean whatever it's fine but it always upset like that ursula Guin told the story of somebody going to wizard school you know 20 years before harry potter with so much more magic like there's mm-hmm. real magic in those books mm-hmm. like real like the, the magic we're talking about today is in the you know ursula Guin is a is super interesting writer and her dog yeah. and everything but but there's, I've just, I read them, yeah, about in middle school age, and I felt seen. Like, yeah. I felt seen and in a way that I don't think I had felt before. And so, yeah. anyway, so, you know, your, your kids are getting to Harry Potter age. And so, yeah. this is, it's my alternative pitch of, like, instead of Harry Potter, what if, what if you know, and obviously they're, they're going to read whatever they want to read, but. They're not interested in Harry Potter. I can't even get London's eight and a half. I can't get them interested in Harry Potter. It's funny. Uh-huh. So maybe we'll just divert that and go straight to Wizard of Earthsea. Yeah. 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 Awesome. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Well, it's, it, it's not surprising that you've, that you've read those books, but yeah. Good. Oh, they're so good. They're so good. So good. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Um, so last thing is just uh, how should people, is there anything you want to pitch or how should people find you if they want to know more about what you're up to? Yeah. My, my website is brookmacnamara.com mm-hmm. and I have a new, I don't know when this conversation will be published. Uh, we're going to shoot for the beginning of March. Okay, great. So Monday, March 6th, I'm starting a new course called Awakening to the Poetic. Um, and the tagline is meditation and poetry for coming alive. Hmm. And it's um, poetry, meditation, um, reading poetry. I'll read it a lot out loud. I'll be teaching about different themes. A lot of what we talked about today, I'll be elaborating on. And then we'll write together with prompts and um, connect in small groups and in the big group based around our process and our poetry. And 
um, I've taught, this is the first time I'm, I'm offering awakening to the poetic. It's similar, but different from summoning the unseen. That class had a similar structure and I just fell in love with how these practices together in community bring people so alive and so connected. Um, so it's for anyone, beginners and advanced practitioners alike, and it'll be on my homepage. Hello, editing Robbie here. Just jumping in to say, you might've noticed that we just missed the March 6th start date of Brooke's class. She was just talking about awakening to the poetic. I talked to Brooke about this and she said, if you still want to join, there is still time. You don't have to join exactly on March 6th. You do have to join soon. So if you're interested in taking that class, there is still time, but you have to go very soon. All right, back to Brooke. And then I also have Art of Meditation is a, an ongoing meditation practice um, class. There's weekly classes and then there's seasonal half-day retreats. Um, and you can find that on my website too. And all, both of those are online, so people anywhere can do them, is that right? Yeah, both of those are online. And then if you're local, like you mentioned, Robbie, we have monthly Dragon Lake Zen Sunday morning practice sessions, um, and that is available through my website too. And that is local to Boulder, Colorado. For folks. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you so much. It's, uh, it's been an absolute pleasure, and I'm yeah very, very happy to have got this chance to talk with you. Yeah, thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. 